Before we get into this current episode, Jill and I would just like to announce that this is episode 100 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. Podcasts have been around for approximately 15 plus years, and in that time there have been over 600,000 shows produced. For the vast majority of those shows, they never really go past episode 7, when people discover the work involved or they just lose passion for what they're doing. So for any show, including ours, to get to episode 100 is a huge milestone. And we couldn't have done it without the support of our listeners. And we thank you for staying with us over these last two and a half years. Thank you for your support. And let's get on with today's show. Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 100 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about trail design. Now, most of you are probably not aware, but I have a background in landscape architecture, and I've got a particular interest in hiking trail design. So when I go out hiking, I'm not only immersing myself in the environment, but I'm also looking at the design of the trail and how it fits within the landscape and how we as hikers use it. Now, in designing trails, there's an awful lot of work that goes into them that probably isn't apparent for someone that's actually just walking them and not thinking about the design process. Successful trail design uh, is probably one of those things that's almost invisible. You enjoy the trail without actually thinking about how it actually got there. In this episode, we're going to be discussing trail design with the designers of the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, which was officially opened in October of 2016. And for me, the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail is one of Australia's best designed, if not the best designed trail. It's pretty much perfect. And we're going to discuss why that is in this week's episode. From a design perspective, trail design can be broken up into three components. There's the design and the layout of the trail itself, and that includes things like trail furniture. Uh, And when we talk about trail furniture, we mean seating um, and other infrastructure. Signage, and this is the interpretive and directional signage you'll find on a trail. And campsite design. Now, we have three segments in today's episode. Um, two interviews, and then Jill and I will be talking about trail design in general at the end of the episode. So first up, we will be talking to two key people involved in the design and the construction of the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail. And first up, we have Grant Gable, Senior Project Manager for the South Australian Department of the Environment and Water. Grant was the South Australian Government Project Manager and played a key role in the design and construction of the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail. So we're going to be talking with Grant about what goes into designing a successful trail from a concept stage through to the final construction. So Grant, thank you for taking your time to talk to the Australian Hiker Podcast. First up, what's your involvement with bushwalking in general? Um, I suppose, Tim, just 
starting from a, a younger age. I suppose we lived on a, a farming property up in the Adelaide Hills, so had a fair bit of native vegetation around the place, and as we used to call it, um, probably when we meant to be doing other work, uh, was we we just went scrub basically, as we called it. So it was just taking off, um, so we didn't have to do any work on the farm and and just wander around the hills. Uh, and just have a good look at things, and um, yeah, that that was really the good start when we when we were kids, you know, very young. So that that was always a good thing. And I suppose later on, um, working later on, I suppose in the, the Australian ski fields up at Falls Creek mainly, um, we got involved in a lot of cross country skiing in the winter, and then of course in summer, uh, ended up working up there and doing a fair bit of walking around in the higher plains and staying in the hut. So. You know, majority of my time, I suppose, spent up on the Bogong High Plains and and walking back, I suppose, towards um, um, I'm just trying to think of the place now. Um, back south, down towards Feathertop and around those areas. So that that was all pretty good at the time. Then from there on, sort of partly due to the skiing link there as well, um, spent a fair bit of time in the States and working in there. Um, along the backpacking lines, uh, I'd spent a fair bit of time in Nepal, so uh, hiking up to Langtang, or Langtang Lorung, it was, or Kunjan Gompa, I think it was called. Um, and then on the way back home, you know, through Indonesia and Thailand, which I've been back to a few times. I suppose the other part, the previous roles as park ranger, end up having to do a lot of walking, you know, just doing trail assessments. <laughs> I was more involved in the operational areas, so uh, just making sure the trails are safe. And then even earlier in my park ranger days, I spent a lot of time planning and actually building them So, um, to some degrees of success. So some of them actually knocking down and rebuilding now because they failed dismally. So, But again, that's in the days when we used to build a trail with all um, a lot of brawn and no dollars behind it. So... Perhaps. And we didn't have the skills then or not as well. So, uh, yeah, so it's pretty broad, getting a bit older these days. So I'm not building as many, but I uh, look after them, so, which is one of those things. All right, so you sound like you've had a fairly broad range of experience, not just in Australia, but also in the US and overseas as well. So it's sort of, uh, it's, I think it's probably giving you a, an idea about things that you like and enjoy doing. Uh, and that brings us to um, the next question. What was your role in the design and the construction of the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail? Yeah. Um, so in the role that I'm working in now, it's basically uh, it, it's it's a project manager working in visitor facilities, I suppose, and more specifically trail design and construction. So I've been doing this for, I think, mm, nearly 15 years, I think, 10, 15 years. So initially I was involved in the, the Kangaroo Island Trail Strategy, which was put together to look at a whole group of trails on the island and what we could potentially put there if, uh, and looking at opportunities uh, for trails there. And, and one of them was a multi-day walk for the island. Um, we did that trail strategy in 2008, 2009, um, which, uh, as I mentioned, just... There was a couple of options there on the island. The island's fairly big, as you're aware, and um, so it was just a matter of work, working through that strategy of trying to come out with the best options there. Um, uh, I suppose yeah. um, you know, you, you, 
Was the idea behind the the trail that it was always going to be in the um, in the national park, or had you had you actually looked at going outside the the, the main park area itself? Look, there, there was a couple of options there. The majority, or the, there was two options basically on the western end. So that's in uh, the Flinders Chase National Park, and going further north, uh, still on the western end, uh, which is the wilderness area above that. Um, the ravine to Corsairs and then the other end was uh, the the eastern end up on the Dudley Peninsula so the majority of that was all on private land so it it wasn't specifically on lands uh, in national parks or government owned so there was a couple of options there but I think in the end the the one that really provided the the go-ahead was really the the landscape down in the Flinders Chase and the opportunities there and linking to existing uh, visitor facilities, for example, Remarkable Rocks and Admiral's Arch and yep. Yep. Uh, those sorts of areas as well. So, yeah. All right. So how did the, how did the, the actual concept of the, uh, the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail come about? And, and, and was there an original vision for the trail or is this, this something that just evolved? Yeah. Um, look, it, it, it did evolve I suppose is a way like certainly out of the strategy so from that um, and and the people who put the strategy together which is partly some other staff in our department but we engaged a consultant to do a lot of market research of existing trails not only in Australia but um, around the world and and looking into what the demand was for trails and, and the different types of trails so once we sort of identified that, then we could go forward and provide or look at options, I should suggest, to to come up with the type of trial we want. So we ended up coming up with a, a trail that we were looking at was four to five days or you know uh, four nights. And in, an, in areas which uh, were basically we're going to try and use some existing trails, but there was a requirement for new trails. But again, linking up to some of the existing facilities as well to give that opportunity for people to see a bit of Kangaroo Island at its best. So um, from there it developed um, a little bit further into you know identification of campsites and looking at areas where they could be. One of the, the, the things that did change a little bit during the process was uh, we'd sort of working down the line and had some alignments basically already um, picked um, and then we got to the naming of the trail we had all these different names and our thinking of the trail was that it would be um, going through those points of interest and trying to use existing trail alignments so um, that would have reduced or certainly reduced the impact and the amount of clearing we had to do but, but later on in the the um, stage as the government at the stage wants to have a, a wilderness trail so we'd actually started designing it just a, a, a multi-day walk trail which would have picked up these high visitation sites and then it went to a wilderness trail so then we had to change a little bit of the the alignment um, to take or to try and give that wilderness feel I suppose so certainly for myself when I've done the wilderness or you know experiences down the southwest trail of Tassie for instance you know it's a very different experience than taking people to places like uh, Remarkable Rocks or Admiral's Arch where there's 150, 200,000 people visit the site. So yeah, we had to yeah. 
work around that and change the the alignment to match. So hence, when you walk the trail now, there's there's a whole lot of spurs that come off. So if you want to still keep that wilderness experience as best as possible, um, you, you don't go off down those spurs and go to those places, or you can go there later when you finish the walk. So yeah, there was a bit of a change there, most certainly through the through the initial vision. But I think once we got captured that. I think we pretty well went forward and, and it's that usual campsite identification and trying to keep the, the trail in that wilderness experience there. All right. Now, you you mentioned in that uh, your, that answer just then, you talk about four to five days. How, how did you decide on four to five days as, a, as being a reasonable length? Yeah, well, certainly from the analysis done from the, the trail strategy and the market research that the consultants did that we found that was... And, and there was actually a lot of um, surveys as well that we, which were done. So some of them were done through walking trail magazines in Australia. So uh, there was opportunities here for uh, the community or the walking community to certainly put their thoughts in of what they would like out of a, a walking trail and a multi-day walk one. So, And generally you find that the, the opportunity for people to have enough time off and and do a walk is a bit limited these days everyone's working very hard so the the three to five day walk is generally fits in pretty well with with most people's lifestyles these days and i suppose we were trying to get it as well because of the 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 challenges of getting onto the island as well you know which is really a day in and a, a day out sort of thing it's we were looking at, you know, how does that best fit into someone's holiday? So generally, you know, you would have a week or two weeks holiday. So the the three to five day walking experience sort of best fitted in that we thought and from all the market research, um, that was the best timeline to, to, be, to have for that for a walk. No, I think I think you're right there. I mean, when you look at, as you say, a, a four to five day walk, uh, a day travelling either side, and then you've got, you know, if you if you tie that into a a weekend at either end, that gives you a couple of days to spare in case something goes wrong, or you want to look at something else rather than just doing the walk itself. So, I think lengthwise, um, I think you're right. I think it uh, it's it's a good length for most people that are the the average hiker. Mm. And probably one of the other things I'll add in there, we were, we were looking at at the different markets as well, and and looking at and understanding the the different walks that are available around Australia. And I think there was a bit of a niche there for a trail which was suitable for people trying to get into the multi-day walking scene that wasn't going to be too hard, but had enough challenges. But also for the for the people who had done a lot of walking, it's still was challenging enough but gave a, a nice experience in the end as well. So there was a bit of a niche there that we were trying to fit in there as well. All right. Um, now, you talked a bit about um, uh, choosing the location in relation to the the major um, the major tourist attractions and, and, and wilderness, but how was the location for the trail – or sorry, how was the location for the trail campsites chosen – and uh, and what yep. was the ration, rationale behind the uh, the distances between the campsites? Yep. So again, just mentioning previously about that that niche of having um, people potentially walk this that hadn't done a they may have done a lot of bush walking, but n- not too much overnight, um, or people that have just got into it but want to experience the 
the multi-day walk and probably the understanding of this as well, that we wanted to have the community involved, I suppose, developing businesses for um, the potentially camping in the sites, but also we're looking at off-site accommodation as well and having potentially guided or pickups, I suppose, from these sites as well. So we wanted a distance that wasn't um, too far, but but far enough to be challenging and enough to get an experience. So uh, you'll talk to a lot of people and they'll say, oh, we, we can walk 30, 40 k's a day, which is, it's great, but not all people can walk that distance. So the campsites were really based on um, the thinking, I suppose, of what, what would be a comfortable walk for a day when someone hasn't done a great deal of walking, if they got a you know reasonable heavy pack and haven't done a great deal of walking, um, and also initially it was linked to those some of those uh, visitor sites. So for instance, the first day was Snake Lagoon. So you've got you've got a nice little area. So the thinking there again was if people were coming in either by bus or plane or whatever, they could actually get down there in the afternoon and do the shorter walk out to the first campsite um, which wasn't too far and it's a nice nice way to start the the walk through the along the rocky river and then turning up a place where they can sit down and relax and watch all the kangaroos and the wildlife there the the next day is a little bit longer and a little bit harder um, and again the campsite there is located at cape Dakuti, um which again is close to those main visitor sites um, as well, the, the other part that comes into that is the access to these campsites as well for maintenance and management and even the construction. So thinking about the budgets we had, we were struggling when I was doing initial calculations to be able to fly all the materials into these sites. But we also wanted to make it so there was um, easy for our staff to go and do the maintenance on these on the campsites as well. Um, but the, the main thing, I suppose, was just the distance in between the campsites to make sure it wasn't too onerous for the for the people to walk and still divide it up, knowing um, we, we had a start point and basically a finish point there as well at, at uh, Kelly Hill Cave. So that was our main determinant factor that, that uh, based that distance. Okay. Um, now, the trail covers a variety of environments, from forest to beach to clifftop, and there's even some rural areas in there as well. What was involved in choosing the route for the trail, uh, and and what were the limitations that you had um, in relation to either logistics or, or as you say, um, access? Yeah. So I suppose when we do a planning in this, I suppose I go back to my old days of building trails where we used to build a trail that would just go from A to B and probably, I won't say the easiest, but the straightest line of going there. And <laughs> we, probably, we probably have it now and it's that saying, it's the journey and not, not the destination sort of thing. So what we do is a lot of planning now and we spend an enormous amount of time in the, 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 the areas of being the, the, the beach or the forest or wherever, trying to find all the different things in there that you can see that's worth going to see whether it's a, um, a geological feature or amazing xanthoria that's 300 years old that survived all the fires or an, a mag magnificent view for instance so um, to pick the alignment the other thing I suppose on Kangaroo Island on the end there it's very exposed to winds as well so 
um, one of the, the other considerations was thinking about, you know, you don't want to be walking along the sea cliffs or along the beach for five days if it's, you know, that howling southwesterly, which does happen, it blows quite regularly at 40 knots. So it's probably not the the walk that everyone would want to be. Again, it's we were trying to get this as a trail with a bit of a niche there for people who hadn't done a great deal of experience. So for some people, that's great. Um, for other people, it wouldn't be the most memorable experience, I wouldn't think. The other thing we tried, what I was trying to do, sort of I suppose bring the ranger experience back into here, we were trying to give everyone a bit of a, a different experience and a look at all the different vegetations associations that you walk through um, and the geological features around the place as well. So that that's what breaks it up uh, with the alignment. The other part of that as well, which is very much linked to that, is the the trail surface. So we've got areas where we've put the trail on some of the cliff top or the rocky areas, which generally tends to be in areas where it's a little bit steeper. So trying to get that sustainability into the trail surface, especially um, in the uh, the island in the end there where there's a lot of sandy areas, we need to manage that gradient. So if we put the trail, the steeper bits of the trail on the uh, rockier sections, that certainly allows then for uh, a better sustainable trail because we can push the gradients than what we normally would. So there's a whole lot of factors that come into where the alignment goes. So it's about the experience through the, the forest or you know, being on the beach and seeing the, the hooded plovers or being on a, a cliff top and looking down at the views with all the seals there. So, And, and some of the, the last bit you mentioned, the rural areas. So on the last second to last day there in an area called Grassdale, you come through a clearing there, which was one of the first... Uh, I suppose farm areas on down the southwest area there on Kangaroo Island. So that was developed, uh, was it back in the late 1800s there? So, and and I think you mentioned there before, Tim, that you went up to the the um, cottage up there, which yeah, was one of yeah. the first buildings there down in that that area. Um, up until about 1930, the everything was basically bought in by boats. Uh, down to Cape Takuti, so that that um, the little cottage that's there is was all by itself, and that they cleared that whole area. So, although it's um, in in the the national park, there is a bit of a uh, European heritage to that area. So it was about providing that as well. That all that also the the clearance in that area did actually provide a lot of areas for a lot of water birds and a lot of wildlife to come. Out, so it's one of those things again. Although it's a, not a natural area, one of the things that um, a lot of people talk about when they visit Kangaroo Island is they saw all the dead kangaroos, but they didn't see many alive ones. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so with that, the clearing brings a lot of the kangaroos out into the open area. So it gives that opportunity for for. I suppose fairly close encounters with the the kangaroos. There's a lot of echidnas you can see down there as well. So there's there's all those parts of it which again provides those different experiences for uh, people along the trail. So that that's probably where all those different areas you go to allow for. And I think I think um, in, in in listening to you talking then, I think you've you've answered my next question in relation to. Um, 
uh, a self-maintaining track. As you say, if you look at uh, trails like the the Larapinta Trail, they get the rock masons in every year to rebuild sections of the trail each year and they just cycle through those on an annual basis and at, at great expense. And, and the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, as you say, it looks like it doesn't have any major issues with erosion or any any major issues with trail damage because it's yeah there's no overly steep areas. Uh, mm. We actually had a friend of ours uh, when we did our trip who wasn't a walker at all, um, and she actually had her her main pack uh, transported from campsite to campsite. But she she coped with it quite well, even though she did have a, a foot injury. A pre-existing foot injury, uh, yeah, and she she found it really enjoyable and, and it worked really well for her. So I mean, I think I think certainly that was that was something that we noticed when we did the walk that you know there, there didn't appear to be any areas that were being being loved to death like on a lot of the trails. Yeah, and look, I, I suppose some of the the early trails that I was involved in. So there's there's one here in Adelaide from Waterfall Gully to Mount Lofty. Um, when when we were first building that, no, I didn't build the initial alignment. It was basically a goat track. But uh, back in the early uh, what was it, nineteen eighty one, I think, when I first started working on that trail, you were lucky to see you know two people a week. Now there's approximately six hundred thousand people walk that a year. <laughs> so you can the, the difference between good trail design and poor over that time can be seen. I suppose it's, it's one of those, uh, a lot of, um, a bit of age, my age here showing here, but you can certainly see the good, good design and bad design. So one of the things we certainly took into account when it was doing the alignment, although I had trail designers and contractors working on the trail, I did spend an enormous amount of time out there looking at areas and uh, working around areas with high, env- high environmental sensitivities or we found locations as well with cultural heritage which we had to go around and then change the alignment um, as well so what we did is um, very much looked at all the gradients so one of the things we design trails now or the sustainable trail design is sort of following IMBA principles which are which is this International Mountain Bike Association so very much it's about drainage is probably the, the most important thing. So we, we deal with maximum gradients not being more than 10%, but even on the sand, I brought that to half of that. So there shouldn't be any gradients more than 4 to 5% on any of the sandy areas. Uh, we always made sure that we there's a lot of grade reversal. So again, that's the little, little ups and downs in the trail, which uh, ensures you've got really good drainage from the tank. So that's one of the things that will always destroyer track is that drainage uh, issues and then we've got outslope so you've got to always ensure that you've got the water is always going to wear out one of the challenging things on some of those sandy areas was that I was very concerned about and still monitored to this day is just generally trail wear which you know people think they don't wear out trails when you're walking but just the general motion of walking you're kicking material to either side which creates the the little channel as soon as you've got that channel, that's what creates the... When it rains, it's that little drain where the water runs and then it starts running faster and faster and then you've got a, a little erosion track and uh, which wears away the trail much quicker than generally the walking does. So we spend an enormous amount of time in there. And one of the other things we've done to manage that at the moment is 
and this is partly for experience of the walkers, but to try and keep the number of walkers, well, we've actually set the figure of a maximum of 48 walkers per day per section. Yeah. So and that, that certainly controls it, and we're monitoring the wear and tear of the trail um, regularly now. So now that 48 walkers a day, that's a combination of commercial groups and, and uh, um, uh, stand-alone or walk-alone walkers, uh, is it? Yeah. Correct, yeah. correct. So, um, and that's been set, and we're not going to change that until we can ensure that um, the, the, the trail is truly sustainable. But the other thing with that is as well as keeping the numbers at a level where, you, you know, you, you feel as though you've, you, you're walking the trail by yourself. You know, you don't want to feel you're, you're walking the Camino Trail or something like that, you, you know, where there's, there's people in front of you and you're just looking at each other's hills. You want to actually take in the view and get that experience of being out there by yourself. Um, so we've, we've certainly put that number in there for a couple of reasons um, to to ensure we've got the sustainability, but also the experience as well there. So I, that, I must, I must admit, we, uh, we we did our walk sort of um, just after Christmas, uh, not last year, year before, and uh, you know, hottest part of the year for most people. So probably not <laughs> as many people on the trail as you would have expected. But you know, we we while we did see other people, we've pretty much felt we had the trail to ourselves. And only really saw others at the end of the day when they sort of came came into camp. So yeah. it, it definitely was, as you say, it, you know, some people like having lots of people around, but you know, this is a wilderness trail, and it is good to actually have the landscape oh. to yourself. And the trail has been very much designed as well to be walked in one direction. So not to say you can't go the other way, but the when when we design trails, I suppose these days it's about you know coming walking around the corner and then. You come around the bend and there's there's that awesome view or to sort of say that massive Xanthoria. So it's a, a bit of the oh wow factor we're trying to bring into that. But you won't necessarily get that if you're walking in the opposite direction yep. as well. So it, it's very much designed to be walked in a certain direction as well. So um, which is really important, and that that's taken into account when we're designing the alignment and, and getting that sustainability back in the trail as well. So all those factors all take account, are into account. It's interesting interesting to hear you say it's designed to be walked in a certain direction. The uh, Larapinta Trail was designed to be walked from Alice Springs and finish at Mount Sonda, but mm. more and more people these days are starting at Mount Sonda walking back to Alice Springs, and it was just I don't think the trail designers foresaw that people were going to do that. They just assumed that they were going to walk in in one way and that was it. So it's, uh, you know, as you say, when in this case here, as you say, you walk around a, a corner and you see something that's that's been, the trail's been designed around that. Uh, and yes. I think I think it's. Uh, I must admit, it would be interesting at some point to, to walk it the other day, other way, just to see what it would be like. Yeah, well, I've done both. I've done it many times. By the way. <laughs> so it, it, look, it's not. It, it's one of those things. You probably you for me. It, I, I don't mind walking things either way. And, and a lot of the trails we design these days, you know, we used to do a, a lot of loop stack loops and things, but we just due to our the budget constraints and our ability to maintain trails from a dollar point of view these days, notwithstanding all the, the volunteers that help us, it's we try and make a trail and, and I walk a lot of trails a lot of the time that have built and it's about you can have a linear trail, which is great walking both ways. 
Yeah. Um, and it, and it's a great experience. So that, that's the other thing we, we do work on as well, that you can actually do that. And as some of the sections in the Wilderness Trail are accessible to public both ways, we certainly have taken that into account. So, And that, I think that's very important as well. So it's not, it doesn't have to be a one-way trail, but yeah, I think for myself that you, you walk one way in certain locations and you do really get that oh, wow factor. All right. So, um, what obstacles arose in the design and construction of the trail, uh, and you know what what issues needed to be overcome? Yeah, that's it was certainly as I uh, mentioned previously, it was um, the the multi day walk trail that was going to take in all these uh, high visitation areas and got changed by really the name of the trail. So we we actually had to have a fair bit of a a change in the alignments and rather than the actual trail going straight to these high visitation areas we changed a few of the alignments in the last few kilometres to take them to the campsite and and introduced these spurs that went down to some of these sites so that was a, a significant change halfway through so we'd, we'd actually been building a lot of the trails so there were some areas that we had to go back and re-naturalise and plant in um, and make sure that we got new alignments right so it was it was a pretty interesting process going back although <laughs> we'd probably walked considering we'd sort of walked most of the trail probably about 20 times and we knew all these different areas so we could actually put the trails in an option b without uh, impacting on the sensitive natural areas or um, you know impacting on cultural heritage so we we actually do or had those other areas identified, so the impacts were weren't too significant whatsoever. But what what we do find, because the planning goes over many years, and when you're doing the environmental assessment, so when you're looking at flora, for instance, so you know we we engage a contractor to go through there in a certain time of year, and generally spring. So when we've got all the flowers coming out, where we can identify all the orchids and some of the other threatened species which only pop up and show the heads for a week or potentially even a day or two. But while you're building, you still do find some rare plants. Um, so you will have to um, go around some of those areas. So generally when we, in our planning, what we do is a we, we, we uh, evaluate a corridor, as we call it, and that can be 20 metres wide and generally the trail will fit within there. So when we do the initial assessments, we've assess a, an area which is good 20, 30 metres wide as I mentioned. So if we do move, that we're, we're basically still in an area which we have assessed and we know what's in there. So we can change those areas. Um, other things we've found are um, indigenous heritage. You know, so it could be hammer stones or some scrapings or some even some little tiny, uh, I suppose, catchments for water where I found you know a stone was covering the hole. So then we have to get back. Um, the guys to reassess and give us some ideas of what we can and can't do. So generally we have to uh, avoid those areas. So there's some areas along the trail which we've avoided by 100 metres. So although I've said we've done the corridor assessment, we actually had to go and change it significantly to go around the cultural area. Um, other things, you know, typically the, the, the cliffs, there's some high cliffs there and there was also some fairly rugged rock when you get close to the cliff, so if you fell over it, um, the, the results wouldn't be too good because they're yeah, very jagged. Yeah. Um, so we've brought the, the alignment back and, and trying to keep 
people safe because there is some very big swells that come up although the the uh, the cliffs are up to 100 foot high you still get water that comes up and over the top of that so um, again that 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 visitor safety was paramount obviously there um, other things we work we work around we did actually go through some private property uh, around the Hanson Bay so that was a southern era, uh, southern ocean lodge and Hanson Bay so we're in private property there so we had to work around with the owners of Southern Ocean Lodge to make sure we didn't impact on their guest and the same with Hanson Bay so um, uh, that was uh, it wasn't so challenging in there but but just changing the alignment to get around those areas without increasing the length of the trail significantly is always a bit of the challenge and then where the the trail ends up in a topographic manner so we, we have issues out there where there's we call them crab holes where there's they're funny little elements in the sand dunes where they're literally they're like a, a very big crab hole which are about 30 meters across but they're just you can't build trails through them so you actually have to go around some of these areas and these are inland probably half a kilometre to a kilometre. Yep. Um, so we had to go around those areas as well because it's, it's nearly impossible to build in those areas. Um, the, other, the other things we, we struggled with a little bit, um, in 2007 there were some very large fires that went through the western end there. So there was a lot of regrowth of the mallees. So um, just going through the newer vegetation and um, seeing where that would line up but also what had happened there was a significant amount of timber that had fallen over and it becomes intertwined so to get a machine or even trying to walk through it was very challenging as well so it took us you know hours to do a search you know so uh, with a couple of my colleagues I remember one day it took us nearly seven hours to go three kilometers through a section so just the the time impact to go through some of these areas was significant were you, um, were you using drones to, to, to do that, or this was pre-drone? No, unfortunately, before, this was all just before really drones. We were looking at it at, at the time, so the, really the technology wasn't there. We were probably a few years too early on it, so on those. But the other thing is it's always a challenge, and you may not be aware, but we do have limitations of using drones, especially in areas down there where we have... Um, there's some threatened species, so the the white-bellied sea eagle, for instance. Yeah, there's yeah. a couple of nesting sites down there, so we try to stay away from those sorts of areas with those things. But notwithstanding, um, we did do some areas later when the bigger drones called helicopters. So we actually <laughs> had a bit of a look, which we I wish we'd had in some of the areas I, I had used them previously before um, when I was in the, the ski life and doing those things, but also when we were doing a lot of other trail works in metropolitan areas, we use a lot of helicopters to lift equipment in and, and it's much easier to see the alignments as well sometimes there as well. So, But yes, it's, it's probably a little, bit, uh, a little bit too early for them because they're a great device to have these days. All right, now you mentioned uh, having to go across private property and that, that brings us on to the next question. So the local tourism community seems to be actively involved with this trail and offers a range of accommodation and transport options. Was this part of the planning process or was it just something that evolved organically after the trail was built? No, look, that was certainly brought into the plan right, right uh, up front. 
uh, not only was the the trail strategy to work out what the markets were for people to want to walk walk this trail or any trails that we were building on the the island, but it was also, I suppose, as an economic development project as well. So, on the island, there is is generally um, fairly high unemployment um, and limited uh, times, I suppose, or peaks of of employment as well. So, what we were trying to do, and we're still trying to do it to this very day, is provide. Um, I suppose experiences which are available year round to try and even out the 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 visitation of the island and and therefore trying to give people longer term and full term jobs on the island so well again this is where we 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 thought about the access here of where people and you mentioned before your friend uh, had their gear moved, so that that's exactly what we were thinking about. Whether people um, like like myself these days, it's becoming a bit of a Chardonnay walker, I must admit. <laughs> but don't mind having a, a glass of wine at the end of a, a good hike, or going back to my uh, good camper trailer, which is very comfortable these days, with a lovely bed on it, rather than the roll, rolled up air mattress. Um, but we were looking at opportunities and knowing that the market is there as well for these sorts of people. There's um, we have the the local caravan park down the area, which um, has set up, or actually since the trail started, has put in seven, I think, new cabins yep. um, to do the the pick up and drop off, so that the people will walk the trail, but they go back and stay in the cabin. So the other things we're looking at is typically the guided tours, so where um, the, there's a, there's the group and they and as you notice at the campsites, it was basically split into two, so there was the camp. Uh, just the general uh, free and independent travellers and then there was the guided ones. So what we're looking at there is having people with guiding um, so they can either carry their own gear or, again, having their equipment all dropped off at the end of each day. So it, it was very much about having the local community involved right from the word go in this trail and, and not just from the design of it but but later on having them literally engaged and the employment opportunities that came from the trail as well. So it certainly wasn't about the department having a, a new trail without thinking about the, the broader uh, opportunities here as well for that. And I think um, I think having the community involved, I mean, you find with a lot of trails around the world that they they often pass through towns or by towns and, and the locals don't even know they exist. But it was certainly very apparent in our visit that, that everyone on the island knew knew about the trail and, and knew what we were doing. So it's good to see. Yeah, now, so, and I think that it's still growing, sorry, uh, with yep. that, Tim. It, I think a lot of people just had to see it. They weren't going to invest in it initially. Um, but once they're actually starting to see the numbers, and they are building now, um, I think that the more and more people will get involved there from the local community, uh, providing the different services that people want for this area. So that's good. Now, you mentioned the numbers are growing. I think I saw somewhere in, in some of the media releases that you've now had 4,000 people walk the trail. Is, is that right? Yeah, no, I understand. So I think it's actually gone over the five now or something, So, which is good uh, for our first few years. As we say, these uh, walks, they, they don't grow overnight. It, it does take a lot to get them going. And, and from our survey, so we, we have a survey that people can fill in, uh, at the end of the walk and tell us about their experience and the good, bad and other, 
but one of the things we it has been interesting that most of the uh, people that know about it is basically from word and word and mouth from friends. So I think it was around about thirty or forty percent uh, have found out about it from someone else had done the trial or who who had known about it. So which is quite interesting for us. So yeah, so that's a it's a good thing. All right. Now, um, in relation to actual the construction phase itself, what specialist resources did you need for the, both the design and the construction phase? Yeah, well, certainly right, and I'll go right back to the beginning, which is uh, really important, I suppose, is, is this, when we develop the um, trail strategy, we actually engage specialist consultants that work in that field and, you know, have worked all around the world basically looking at trails and looking at um, the, the trail requirements. So you need to assess the demands for the trail related to the experience and then you need to try and match that trail to the demand because it's pointless trying to build a, a trail that you're not achieving any of those objectives because you can spend a lot of money and not many people will use it. So um, I, I, way back, you know, back in, well, it was 10 years ago now, when engaging the people to do that and even in that stage there was a lot of uh, community consultation about potential business opportunities but also trying to find out um, what other people want and, th and that's where we also went out to um, hiking magazines and got some feedback from there. So I think that's a really important part because if you're not meeting those objectives, you you're going to fail all the way through. So um, that that's a very important part. But further down the line, you know, once you've got what you're going to build, then you need a, a whole suite of people in there from people that can do the heritage assessments or the cultural heritage assessments. So we have our own government databases which, which we look at and we know that they're but notwithstanding that's only if the, the site's been found before so we do need people to go through who understand the, the cultural heritage um, assessments and who can identify potential locations where we might run into issues there. Now is this uh, the um, other part? Sorry, sorry. I was going to say is this indigenous heritage as well as European or? Yes no that's both yes yeah. so and over there because it's um the cultural heritage, indigenous cultural heritage, is very different to the the rest of the the state. Um, then it was a bit more challenging to find. So um, it, it's an interesting location of of what group were actually using the area in the first instance. So and there's some different areas. But look, we we approach all the different groups and and see if we can get the information from all of them. So that we don't sort of certainly go down one line or the other, but the other part is, the, of course, the European heritage. So that is fairly well documented. So we, we can work with that fairly easily. Other things we need, certainly, which I engaged early on were the, some trail planners. So we, we were doing those initial trail corridors, I'd suggest, to, to go through the better vegetation. And, and what we would go through there is trying to get that, those gradients working uh, from that point of view and, and obviously make, looking at the potential construction issues so we try and knock them out early. Once we've done that, that's we we have a basic corridor so then we'll get, uh, as I mentioned before, some consultants in who have the environmental background so that could be in the native vegetation, uh, fauna and flora. So we've got to look at the ecology of these areas and although the, the trail itself is fairly minimal and we actually use the existing 
roo pads or the roo trails as we call them. Yep. Um, so we, we have a shared highway now between them. Um, we, we need to get those people in to do the assessments for us and making sure that we're not missing anything from um, the park's perspective as well not, and not losing any uh, or not, I suppose, um, damaging any of the uh, environmental sensitivities here as well. So, And that, that goes in the campsites where there is larger areas. But again, you would have noticed we tried to pick areas which were a bit clearer. So when the architects and myself were working in those areas and we spent uh, a significant time there with the architect and myself looking around all of these areas to uh, assess what would what would fit and what we needed and how the buildings would fit into the vegetation and off the side of that what we would be doing is uh, some of my other colleagues and myself here were looking at the bushfire risk so the the bushfire attack levels so to meet all the planning requirements we need to have the buildings built to a, a standard which is under the Australian standards um, to meet the bushfire attack level. So that, that took a bit of um, work as well, so trying to find an area where it fits into a nice area but trying to manage the vegetation as well, which is uh, a bit of a tricky process. So David, Shannon, the, the architect and myself spent uh, numerous weeks in the, the bush looking for, for the right locations or finalising, I should say, the, light, the, the right locations there as well. They, so probably, they, uh, sorry. I was going to say, they, they, they certainly are pretty impressive campsites, so, and we're going to talk more about those in the next segment with, with, with David Jannon. Uh, I think uh, you know, they're probably some of the best facilities for a campsite anywhere in Australia, I think. Uh, I think, I think that you've both done a really good job in that respect. It's uh, good to hear. Now, look, I'm pretty proud of what what we came out with, and uh, and you know, with limited budgets, I think we have got the right materials there. Knowing all the issues that we've built structures out of previous, um, so there's a lot of stainless. You'll notice there, but considering we're very close to the coast, we wanted these structures to last. Um, so uh, generally, we've built things in the past using uh, hot dip galvanised. Uh, iron um, and a lot of those but they've all failed basically so <laughs> it has cost us a bit more to build these structures but I suggest we'll get the longevity out of it that we're after but certainly David has put his touch on there as well which is I think it's uh, very impressive and furniture designs uh, all those sorts of things and, and locations I think it's fantastic So, and from our, our surveys we're getting pretty good results from that as well but Certainly, probably last uh, group there is. Uh, I think we need a good project manager. So I'm going to be <laughs> pat on the back. Uh, but look, it's not just the project manager. Look, there's a there was a massive team of staff that worked on this within the department, and there was a lot of people within the community and all the contractors that that made this the trail what it is. And without all of those people that we wouldn't have got the results that we have today. So I think it's uh, really important that the the efforts of the, the, the staff um, who have put an incredible amount of hard work because typically you get um, the, the timeline pressures that the minister wants it finished yep. uh, sooner <laughs> than later. Um, there was a lot of people working very hard. So I think it was a, a great team effort, um, including David there and, 
and other senior managers and uh, other project managers I had working with me to, to pull this one off for sure. Now, you mentioned earlier on in this interview um, about helicopters. How did you actually get all the um, all the materials and the fabric in there? Did you Were you able to drive a lot of the stuff in there or, or were you using helicopters as well to drop stuff in? No, we, we basically, again, with it's, it's sort of fairly minimal wear is where we can use helicopters down there due to, and times, I suppose, uh, due to the um, um, uh, eagles down there so and the ospreys as well. So what we wanted to do as well, and this, this brought down the construction cost, was to try and get that access into the campsite. So, for instance, Cape Takuti, although it's close to the campsite's relatively close to the road, we only had to put a small linking trail in the back there to get all the materials in yeah notwithstanding that the boys had to still carry a lot of gear in because we couldn't get big cranes in to lift some of those um, big uh, stainless steel beams in on the shelters they were quite heavy so there was a lot of uh, assistance getting them in <laughs> but uh, no it was all about the access really um, which there's a couple of trails so Sanderson for instance actually had to build or I should say upgrade, there was an existing trail there which we stopped the fire in 2007 on. But So basically I just upgraded that whole trail uh, to get access in there and then off that the main bit of the trail, it only goes in about another 200 metres um, where we tucked a trail in. And again, most of the gear was bought in on very small machinery, so little tiny bobcats or little tiny excavators or literally lifted in by hand. So... A lot, of, a lot of hard work and a lot of sweat and tears in there. <laughs> yeah. Now, okay, so one final question just to finish off this interview. Given the opportunity, what would you do differently if you had the, the, your time over in, in, in designing and building this trail? Would, would you do anything? Um, yeah, it's a good question there, Tim. I, look, I think it's, it's always challenging to do a trail like this because it's you, you're trying to, although notwithstanding all the planning we did before, you're just trying to, get it right for the, the people who are going to walk it. So I think we've got the majority right looking at all the feedback we've received uh, on all the surveys and we've got, yeah, good good responses there. There are, there are a few little comments, of course, which come in, so, so it's always a bit hard to make everyone happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think in the planning of the trail alignment, we've tried to give people not just the walk, but it's the whole experience to remember, I think, uh, is where we, where we tried to go with that. Um, and you want that to be a real memorable experience. So I think from all of that feedback, we've, I think we've achieved that, so which is pretty good. Um, in changing anything, there was probably a few little bits and pieces I would have liked to get a little bit better, I suppose, with the water supply, which has been changed a little bit now. Uh, you, you will hear the little electric pumps going. So we were looking at solar initially, but we we had a few budgetary constraints early, so we had to hold off on there. But um, maybe the shelter design, again, trying to build to budget, we could have perhaps made them a little bit different to provide a little bit more shelter in the winter. But again, again it's that hard line of, we have the hardcore walkers that don't actually want anything, but then we're trying to fit it for new walkers as well. So um, there might have been, we might have extended the, the walls around those a little bit more, I think, uh, just for the poor conditions. And there's typically the, the little things that 
we didn't get back to or I think we could have improved or made better locations to for areas to hang, you know, backpacks and uh, wet weather, you know, when you're wet or things like that. Yeah, and yeah. just making sure possums and all those sorts of things can't can't get to them as well. But, look, I, I had a real good think about that. And, look, I'm generally pretty happy of what our end result was for there. So there's probably not too much I would change. There might be a few little things I'd tweak a little bit but I, I think I'm pretty happy with it, the end result and again from what I'm seeing on the responses everyone's pretty happy so that makes me very happy so to, to know that from the planning that we've got it pretty right is um, a really good result. All right that's great. Okay so we've been talking to Grant Gable Senior Project Manager from the South Australian Department of Environment and Water. Thank you very much for your time Grant. No, thank you, Tim, and I appreciate the time. I'm, I'm glad you, you and your partner and your friends enjoyed the walk, and I hope many hundreds of people after still have that same experience. So, no, I'm sure. I'm and sure. hopefully we might better talk another day about another trail. Oh, that would be, that'd be great. Okay, thanks so much, Grant. All right, thanks, Tim. Now in this next segment of today's podcast, we'll be talking to David Shannon from Shannon's Architects in South Australia. David's firm was responsible for the campground design on the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, um, and I'd like to thank David for taking the time to talk to Australian Hiker. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. In the previous segment, we talked to uh, De Grant from the South Australian Government on about the overall process. Uh, what I'd like to talk to you today about was more about the campground um, and the processes behind that. So if you'd just like to give us a bit of a, a background in your company's role in the design and the construction of the campground uh, and, and I suppose overall and how that related to the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail. Sure. Um, we were the lead designer for all aspects of the campsites, uh, which involves coordinating a team of engineers and various other skills as well as undertaking the main planning and design works for the whole site. Uh, we then assisted in the appointment of the building contractor and um, superintended the works, including quite extensive site inspections and um, resolution of issues. Okay, so now there are, there are four dedicated overnight camping areas along the trail. So we've got Cupgum, Hakia, Banksia and Tea Tree campsites. What was the inspiration for the design of these campsites and was it the same for each site? Um, that's a very big question. Um, look, overall, the inspiration for all of them is, is, is each site. You know, it's about the trail, it's about experiencing the environment. Um, now, in terms of the inspiration for each site, there's a deliberate attempt to subtly create a different experience for campers. So that means we've attempted to to introduce a feature or an aspect suited to each site so that if you turn up after a day's walking, there's something slightly different at each. Um, so, for example, in the first site at Cup Gum, there's, there's decks against the hillside. Um, the next site, you, you come into a more cloistered, vegetated area where a focus is on some of the bonzo-like forms of the, the landscape. Um, 
the last site, which is, was a former pastoral property, it, it's deliberately a far more open character to open up the views and sunshine, etc. After after days of being in the scrub, so to speak, um, and brings in um, the river with a with a bridge to get you to the other side to the to the living quarters, if you like. Um, so yeah, very much from the landscape but also just trying to introduce subtle features so that people appreciate that there are differences. The thing that struck me when staying at these campsites was they, they, they at least appeared, from my perspective, to have been designed by someone who was a hiker uh, or at least someone who knows what hikers like. So as an example here, the, the kitchen area, uh, which was obviously meant as a, an area of congregation, was um, well away from the sleeping areas, uh, which was also well away from the toilet facilities. So they all, all had separate, they were all separated by sufficient distance that they didn't impact on each other. Now, was this a major consideration in the design process? Oh, very much so, yes. Um, in fact, the, 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 the original concepts call each area, you know, living, bathroom and bedroom um, in a typical you know, domestic zoning arrangement because those separations are very important. Um, we're trying to provide a national park experience, you know, which is about hopefully reasonable amount of peace and tranquility and um, space to appreciate what's around you. So, um, yeah, very much about the zoning and the separation. And, you know, that's driven, again, by the site, you know, what you can and can't achieve. Um, now, in, in respect to that, I mean, one of the things you find with a lot of other trails is it's almost the opposite in some respects. They try and minimise the impact, if you like, on the landscape and to, uh, and, and put things as close as they possibly can. So you find that the, while the toilet might be sort of 30 metres away from the, the, the sleeping and the kitchen area, um, you know, really with a lot of the other trails around the country, everything is, is packed in and quite close. Um, how did you find that um, you went with the uh, the South Australian government? Was was it an argument that you had to, to have or were they on board with the, the, the space that was taken to, to develop these sites? Firstly, I mean, the, the, the environment is always first, okay. Um, most of the sites have had previous disturbance. I think there's only one, which is um, the second to last site. I'm, the, the name escapes me from the moment. Banks here. Banks here, yep. Where, where it was, you know, largely untouched. Um, so each site uses a, a semi-degraded footprint either completely or you know, pushes back into it. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of examples. So, for example, in the um, site at Hakea, there is, if you go looking, there's an actually a small borrow pit where someone had been in there previously. And then the cleared area was created by the major bushfire that went through some years ago. Yep. yep. Um, so... Yeah, there's definitely no pushing on footprints and using degraded areas in whichever way you can. I mean, every site received full environmental assessment by the department before anything happened, and then after, you know, any vegetation clearance was agreed. 
Now, in, in locating each of the components within the four campsites, um, what were the considerations as far as the individual components? Was you know, did you look at how important was the the the, the way they faced and the location within the la- landscape? Firstly, I mean, I, I, if we think of it in terms of I mentioned in terms of a residential zone, if you think of the shelter as that living zone, all of the shelters wherever practical. Um, head to the north, northeast, so that you know the sun can come in in the mornings to give you some warming, um, and are oriented to an aspect. It, sometimes that uh, doesn't appear that way, but they are carefully placed to take the best of what they can. Um, at, at the the last site at Tea Tree, it, it, it was a deliberate. Let's open this up so that you're not looking at the, um, the the scrub close. You're looking at a distance view on the sky. Um, at the first site, um, at, I think it's Cup Gun. The there's a small, a dry seasonal lake which the wildlife congregates on, and the shelter orients to that. Yeah. Yeah. So a- each individual shelter is carefully placed from that point of view. I must admit, I hadn't actually realised that. I mean, even after having walked the trail, it didn't occur to me that the sun was coming in the morning. And I must admit, I did realise that it was when I was there, but I didn't think about it from a design aspect. So, as you say, it, it uh, we did it in the middle of summer, but even even early in the morning, it can be a bit cool sometimes. So having that, that sun come in makes quite a difference. Mm, yeah, so, the, so the, the screens, the little things, the screens orient to the, to the weather, the roof turns up to the east and the north, you know, and and drops down low to the to the south west, where the main bad weather comes from. So, if you look at each shelter in with those in mind, you'll see there's quite a bit of um, thought going into them. Now, uh, were there any issues in the design or construction phase that that needed to be overcome when you were you were either both designing or actually uh, building the actual units themselves. I think generally all the elements it was it was planned. There weren't many that came in late, but but from our point of view, I mean the servicing of the sites needs to be done, and hopefully when you're on the, in them, you you fail to appreciate that there is an access track coming in. Some will be better than others, and that people that the the parks staff can come in from behind and service, clean, bring in water or whatever they need to do. Um, that's not a problem if it's well planned, but that's that was significant. Um, the the other thing that people may not be aware of is the degree of attention that has gone into every track and every site within those, every individual tent site within those zones. You know, um, I won't tell you how how many times each individual site would have been pegged, re-pegged and checked before the builder actually cleared anything out. So if you go, if you go to every single site that has been individually looked at, individually had every corner pegged and agreed and then come back and shifted and moved before it was built. That's not a problem, but that's just very good detailed planning. 
I think um, one of the things that I mentioned to to Grant in the previous um, uh, interview uh, was, from my perspective, this this trail looked like it was actually designed for ease of maintenance. And, and I suppose what I mean by that is, you know, you look at some trails like, and I use the example here of Lara Pinta Trail, where they get stonemasons to come in each year just to rebuild a lot of their, their trails uh, where, you know, when they're, they're going down fairly steep slopes and they, they need extensive rock work almost on an annual basis. This one looked like it was, how can we make this a really good trail, a really good set of campsites and do and has to do the minimal amount of work to maintain these in a good condition. Um, and I think one of the things that Grant mentioned was there's the use of stainless steel on some of the uh, some of the infrastructure. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We've, we've um, it, it can be slightly more expensive up front, but we've found that in coastal locations that you know everything else is going to fail or require a lot of maintenance. Um, whereas the stainless, as major structural and, and other minor elements, actually, as long as no one polishes it, yeah, it's yeah. quite a nice tannin, tannin stain and actually blends quite well. And in theory, nobody has to touch it for its whole life. So, yeah, you'll find that, you know, columns and things and brackets are all stainless steel rather than something else. And I suppose now one final question is, would you do anything differently if you have the opportunity to, to do it all over again? Not really, no. No, I think it's been successful, it works. There are elements of servicing in terms of how you provide water, um, how you deliver water, which on these sort of sites can turn into a little trial and error. Um, I think our original system worked reasonably, but not completely, but would, would would we do it differently? Probably not, because it, it it really is literally a one-off prototype when you're doing something like this. And, yeah. Um, yeah. There's no precedent, and we haven't got power or water or pressure, <laughs> so you you are trying to invent things. And not neither do we have an endless budget that allows us to do some elaborate. Um, systems or proposals so you're constantly working within that, that reality um, the only other I think in terms of retrospect which is a wonderful thing um, I think it would be fair to say that perhaps more people are doing sections as day walks than was anticipated yep. um, that is being dropped by licence you know, tour operators into these areas to walk it which means that perhaps we would have addressed how these people arrived at some of the sites in that they're probably coming in, if you like, the back door yep. up through the services to get to them. Um, I mean, that could always be addressed in the future. But again, retrospect's a wonderful thing. Um, and I don't think that changes most of the sites, but a few, they probably do feel like they're coming in the back door. Yeah. Yeah, I think as you but say, it's a market thing. Nobody really knows which way it will head or, or where it will go. No, no, and I think uh, from my perspective, this this trail is probably the one that I would recommend to most people, you know, who who want to do uh, do their first multi day hike. It's it's 
The trail itself is well designed. There's plenty to see. The campsites, I think, are probably the best in Australia. Um, you know, it just they all just have really good feels about them. Um, you know, and it's sort of it's just a joy to go through and walk whether you whether you're an experienced hiker or a a new hiker. Um, and we certainly had a, a a brand new hiker with us who hadn't done a multi day hike before, and, and and she she felt the same way. So um, oh, that's great. That's terrific. I would say that that's a, that's an advertisement for good planning. Well, no, it, no, none of that is accidental. <laughs> From well, a client's it, point of view and ourselves, you know, team effort, you know. As you say, you know, talking to you and talking to Grant, you know, you, you obviously spent a lot of time before ground was actually broken, broken to actually get it, get it as 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 perfect as you possibly could. Uh, and I know Grant was saying that you know, it, 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 when the original design started, drones weren't quite um, a, a, a commercial thing at that stage. Uh, and, and he said, even though that drones were, uh, you know, prohibited in a lot of areas in the park, it's it would have been nice to actually fly something over in an area rather than having to walk it all the time. Um, but I suppose this is yeah. the, the new technology that we have to have to deal with as as time goes on. Yes, it's um, it's one thing to walk those areas on a trail, but when you're pushing in, pushing in to find a, a site. Um, and then trying to find your way out again, it can be interesting at times because, yeah. you know, when we came there, they literally were scrub and you'd push in along what you thought you remembered the little track <laughs> you took last time and forget it and then push your way out again. Um, so, yeah, Grant's quite correct. <laughs> So we've been talking to David Shannon from Shannon's Architect. Uh, as we said, David's firm was responsible for the campground design, and and from my perspective, as I said, these are these are some of the best campsites in any any uh, hiking trail in Australia. And I, I can't uh, can't say strongly enough. This is a trail that if you haven't done, it's worthwhile adding to your list. So thanks very much for your time, David. Much appreciated. Thank you, Tim. So I'm sure that many of you weren't aware of the amount of time and effort that goes into designing and constructing modern-day hiking trails. I think it was interesting listening to particularly Grant's interview at the start of this podcast where he talked about mistakes that have been made in the past. And I think if you can look at some of the very old tracks and trails that are around the place, it almost appears that if if they've been designed as what is the shortest distance uh, between two points. Whereas these days, uh, modern trail designers need to start thinking about um, maintenance costs, which are ongoing and and and, and, and consuming uh, ever larger uh, percentage of, of dwindling budgets, um, about um, where these uh, walks actually go. Are they taking in scenic sites or is that more a secondary consideration uh, in relation to uh, trying to get there as quickly as you can? So it's, um, I think it's something, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, from, from our perspective, the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail is probably the best designed trail uh, really in Australia. Uh, and I think it's just because everything just seems to fall into place. Um the campgrounds are so well thought out in both the layout and the distance between the components. Um, there's a variety of natural environments from beach to clifftop to forest. 
Uh, and from a maintenance perspective, which is not something that most hikers tend to think about, is the trails not being degraded um, by a large number of hikers uh, physically impacting on the on the trail itself. And I used it as an example here, uh, the Larapinta Trail, which is, again, it's one of my favourite trails, but the fact that they have to get stonemasons in on a regular basis to rebuild switchbacks and to rebuild um, infrastructure, um, you know, it's a it's a trail that costs money to maintain that they don't physically make direct money out of. So there's an awful lot of um, considerations that most people don't even think about uh, when they are walking on these trails. So from your perspective, Jill, what what was your view on the the, the design or how the, how the the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail was set out? From the beginning, it's obvious that it's it's purpose designed. Uh, for hikers, uh, you mentioned the campsites, and and that becomes very apparent when you uh, navigate around those campsites, and you're doing what you need to do, and um, the distance between uh, the toilet facilities and the kitchen, and uh, the sleeping areas, and and so on. Um, I, I think you know I find this interesting. This view about mistakes that were made and it's interesting that that it's been put into that context because I think really it's about what we expect more broadly in the community now which is about uh, there are a whole bunch of different needs that need to be met and if you've got in this case a trail for hikers then you have to meet the needs funnily enough of the hikers and so they want an experience, they, they want to enjoy, uh, they want to see things, um, you know, they, they want the vistas and they also want, I guess it's a little bit in, you know, you mentioned, uh, earlier on in the episode about your background in, in landscape architecture. Um, there is this thing about the surprise. And I think that was one of the things that was particularly good for me um about the kangaroo island wilderness trail is there there was enough meandering uh so that you would get some surprises uh i think sometimes there was probably a little bit too much meandering um and too many bends uh you know but that's okay uh and some of the other trails that we've been on not there wasn't so much surprise so you could go oh yeah i'm heading that direction and i'll just keep watching it or um you know, the trail has just been an add-on to the management road or the management trail. So you're just, you know, wandering alongside. You don't necessarily see it all the time, but you know that you're heading in the same direction as the car um, or the four-wheel drive that the ranger might have. So this is quite different to that, and I think, you know, that is a reflection of what we expect now this is, you know, user-centered design, um, which is uh, something that I do a lot of in my work. Um, but it's not in isolation of those other interests, such as you need to maintain it. So, you know, how, how do you marry all of those requirements so that you have something that will be relatively easy to maintain um, and will continue to provide the experience for the hikers. Yeah, it it, it is it is quite interesting. As as I said, you know, having having my background, I I I can't help but look at 
the design and the layout and how the trail fits within the landscape. It's just something that I do. And David Shannon mentioned that as well. You know, as an architect, every time he goes somewhere, he looks at building and looks looks at buildings and looks at looks at designs. Um, yeah, and, and from my perspective, it really did strike me. Um, the Kangaroo Wilderness, the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, really is well worth the effort for experienced hikers. Um, and, and it's also, I would really have said this in the past, but it's the one that if you're new to multi-day hiking and aren't quite sure if you're ready for it or not, this is the trail to pick. Um, you know, there's no trail that's that's for foolproof. There's always potentials for for issues or problems, but this one is is a, is about as foolproof as it is possible to make it. You know, it's almost impossible to get lost. The distances are good, the facilities are good, um, and if you are looking at branching out into uh, your first multi-day hike, then this is the one to choose. Yeah, and I think also the backup options that are provided by. Uh, commercial operators in the community are there too. So even if you did get started, um, and you know, uh, you found that you weren't able to continue to carry your pack, for example, um, there are enough options to be able to connect up with a provider to make alternative arrangements partway through. So I, I would agree with that. And I do agree that it is one for ex- experienced hikers, uh, likewise. Um, I think, you know, design's a really interesting thing because um, when it's when it's right, it just makes sense. And I think it's, you know, I guess in a more sort of, uh, I guess, theoretical sense, you talk about form and function. Um, but for the average person, and we've all, all experienced this when uh, we go to use something and it just doesn't quite make sense or we, you know, approach a building and, you know, the path's in the wrong place. Um, and so you've got goat track up to the, uh, up to the building where the path isn't. Uh, that meant that the path didn't make sense. <laughs> you know, look beautiful, but, you know, it, it didn't, uh, it wasn't positioned where people would go naturally. And I think some of that has been captured in, uh, this trail as well. So, you know, I do look a little bit for that and, um, it, it, yeah, it was, it was, it, because it made sense, I think, uh, it was an easy, easy one to follow, an easy one to navigate. Some might think that that means that it's, uh, too basic for them to go on this trek. Uh, I just think that it means that the designers have done a great job. Okay, so that's all for our episode on trail design. Uh, We hope that uh, you've enjoyed this. Now, to listen to our experiences of our on-trail trip on the uh, Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, um, go to the show notes for this podcast, and we'll have the links to the Kangaroo Island Trail series. Um, And this is our pre-trip and our our on-trail recordings uh, of our trip from uh, Christmas uh, 2017. Now, uh, that's all for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. And next time you're out in the trail, that you give some consideration to the effort that so many people put into designing and constructing the trails we love so much. In our next episode, due out next week, we'll be discussing the concept of packing your fears. And some people may not be familiar with this term, 
but this is the impact that our own individual mind or our own fears uh, pushes onto us as far as what equipment and gear we take on hikes. As always, you can listen to this episode through our website at www.australianhiker.com.au, through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and many other online podcast libraries, including Radio Australia. To help get the message out there, please let your friends know about Australian Hiker. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.